all bad things. Tragedy. Tragedies, disasters. That's bad things. Trigger warning for everything possible. What? Hello. Okay. I'm Rachel. And I'm David. And this is All Bad Things, wherein Rachel is losing her voice and struggling <coughs> to speak. Just a little bit. <laughs> Did you think that hello was creepy? Very creepy. <laughs> and, and very unexpected. <laughs> oh, yes. I have um, had yet another illness strike. It's like the third one this year. Mm -hmm. It's been awful. Yeah, 2019 has not been kind to you so far. No, it hasn't. It has not. So, um, but fortunately I have enough of my voice back to be able to record tonight because it wasn't looking that way a couple days ago. No, because we were going to record yesterday and it was like, no, no, not 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 completely back yet. No, no. (sighs) All right. Rate, review, rescribe. Um... (laughs) Uh, follow us Insta, Twitter, Facebook at All Bad Things Pod. Email us allbadthingspod at gmail dot com. Um, and what are you drinking tonight? I am drinking to, to get that uh, voice loosened up a little. Yes, bit. I'm sure this will help. Um, Bifurcation Project by Haw River, um, which is out of Saxapaha. 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 Which I guess we learned is unincorporated, or it used to be. Yeah, like a little unincorporated town. It's just kind of there. uh, Out in the middle of nowhere-ish. I'm sure there are plenty in the state. Oh, yeah. And I know there were plenty uh, in the part of New York where I grew up. Yes, yes. And it is a coconut curry ale. It's actually pretty good. Do you want to try it? Yeah, because unfortunately you cannot try mine. I am having the Southern Pines... um, White Russian Imperial Stout. Based on the dude, right? Mm-hmm. From the Big Lebowski. Big Lebowski. <laughs> and they actually have the artwork on there, which I'm yeah. kind of surprised. So ah. they must have paid something for that. Mm. I don't... Who I knows? just getting away with it. Who knows? We won't call them out for it. It is delicious, and it is also an 11 percenter. Ooh, so you're going to be so, the one who's flying high by the end of tonight. We'll see. This is really good. I, I like the bifurcation... Project. It's uh, it's not bad. It's like actually, uh, kind yeah, nutmeggy, spicy. Yeah, that is actually pretty good. Yeah, we might have to go to Saxapaha. One of these days. Well, we we're going to with my sister. We already tried a well, couple of weeks ago, horrible, and it was pouring down rain. Horrible. And then your sister's like, "Well, there's no place to sit inside," and I'm like, "Well, then why are we going?" Well, I was like, "Number one, why would you have a brewery with no place to sit inside?" Well, and I was like, number two, it's pouring down rain and like cold. I'm like, I'm not fucking going an hour. To- <laughs> I was glad we decided yeah. to just hang out in Durham instead. That was yeah. that was much better. Yeah, I agree. I, I do want to go to this place. Yes, and we will. Just not when it's 45 degrees and pouring down rain. No, we'll pick and you better. can't and you have to sit outside. Yeah, we'll pick a better <laughs> time for that. Um, shout out to our uh, another uh, a fellow North Carolinian listener Ricky who um really helped encourage me this week because after those shitty one star reviews uh Ricky was 
a five-star reviewer for us and was very kind and very complimentary. And we sent along uh, the, I think it was the Andes plane crash script signed as a thank you. We still have more scripts if anyone wants one. Feel free. <laughs> you get a script, and you get a script. I think we already did you that. You get a script. Joke. I'm just doing it again. Oh, okay. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. I'm, I'm out of original material at this oh, point. Oh, okay. We're Into our 87th episode? 87. This is 87. Wow. Yep. And um, this is this is a little bit different this time yes. around. We're doing something new. Yeah, we're doing a two-parter, which that in itself is not necessarily new because we've done multi-parters before, but... We're splitting this one up. Mm-hmm. So um, it's not a secret to you. You know what this topic is because you are, I'm doing part one. I did the research and I'm doing the presentation on part one. And you are going to be finishing it up next week with part two. I will tackle part two because this is a story as you will. Well, as you've already found out, because as soon as you. The episode title. Yeah. Yes. But um, there is the tragedy itself, the accident itself. Right. And the aftermath is probably worse, yes. definitely worse yes. than the accident, I would say. Yeah. Definitely worse. Yeah. So it deserves, it's two different stories. Yes, it is. It, you're right. It is definitely two different stories. Should we let Demetrius in? He is clawing at our soundproofing. Demetrius, come in. Demetrius, there you go. You all say you like Demetrius, so... <laughs> We'll let him in. He's a little obnoxious to us sometimes. He didn't but. actually make a sound this time, which is... But, no, now, he, but now he's just going to pull down the soundproofing. Yes, our... Uh... Oh, Demetrius. <laughs> Here, come come to the microphone. Say hello. Be entertaining. <coughs> this is riveting. Riveting podcasting. Um, I can feel the stars falling off our reviews. <laughs> Oh, but guys, I am too sick to edit. It's just been exhausting. And of course, this came in the middle of tax season, too. And things are really yes. heating up in tax season right now, too. Yeah, the uh, the stars so. are falling off our reviews. Like, our soundproofing was just falling off, off the, the door. door. Yes, yes. So, as is a surprise to no one, today's topic is part one of... The Exxon Valdez oil spill. And as I discovered, it apparently is Valdez. Because we were talking about that over whether it was Valdez or Valdez. It's spelled Valdez. Um, and it it goes against every ounce of my South Florida born and raised instinct to say Valdez. However, it does appear that is how it is pronounced in this case. So... <laughs> All right. <laughs> That's just how I feel right now. <laughs> okay. So, on March 24th, 1989, which, oh my God, we're basically falling right in line with the um, 30th very, anniversary. Very close. Yeah, really, yes, really very close. close. Just before. Um, yeah, because I remember um, I was in sixth grade when this happened. And how old are you now? Um, I'm uh, a senior <laughs> in college. <laughs> nice try. 30 years later. Hey, it's possible. <laughs> um, yeah, this was because one of the things about this tragedy is this was pretty much the uh, momentum for 
um, things like climate science and things like that. Uh, That's what this was because environmental impact. Because yeah. there had been there had been an environmental movement in America at this time for probably a good twenty five years. Oh, longer than that, um, Silent Spring by Rachel Carl Carlson Carson. I was sounding so smart until I didn't remember her name. Um, Carlson. It went back to like the forties or fifties. True, but I'm but I'm for a very long but I'm time. talking about gaining like momentum in terms of media and, well, and like national. Hippies, the sixties. That's what sort of, kind of yeah. that's what brought it along. Uh-huh. This was kind of the thing to me anyway, because I remember this being the thing that put. Um, environmental protection and stuff like that on the forefront of mm. people's minds was this tragedy mm-hmm. because now it's like because now you can see it what oh. what what happens and if you're a, that's a trigger warning don't look up pictures of the Exxon Valdez <sighs> oil spill unless you want yeah. to see a lot of really sad things about animals yeah but we'll get to that next week we will this week I'm going to at least finish the opening sentence on March 24th 1989, the Exxon Valdez oil tanker ran aground and spilled nearly 11 million gallons. Oh, I didn't know it was that much. Yeah, Jesus. of crude oil off the coast of Alaska in what is still considered one of the worst environmental disasters in history. Specifically, one of the worst man-made environmental disasters, although climate change has eclipsed that because we're basically killing off our entire planet at this point. But I digress. So, first off, obviously this is a giant disaster. We were going to cover it sooner or later, but I do want to give a shout out to at Open My Heart Again on Instagram, <laughs> who did specifically request this disaster or suggest this disaster. So That's also a lyric in a Tool song. Well, maybe they're Tool fans. I guess so. Um, okay, so we're going to start with one of our favorite features, Geography Corner. <laughs> Um, this is our first Alaska disaster. Is it? I think so. I can't think of another one. I guess not. Yeah. I, I, I can't think of another Alaskan disaster. Period. <laughs> so I guess we haven't done well, one. Well, shout out to our pod friend, Murder Under the Midnight Sun. Ariel is... <coughs> oh, sorry, guys. Um, has covered many an Alaska true crime. So, but this is an Alaska true. disaster. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to travel to our, what number state? It is the, it's the 49th, yes, correct? It is. Yes, yes, it's not it the fifth. Even, even though them and Hawaii became states in the same year. That is I correct. Believe. That is correct. So, um, but yeah, I, I was pretty sure Hawaii was last. Yes, you're right. So Alaska is enormous. Yes. Um, ridiculously it is, enormous. Yes, it is our largest state by land, land size in the U.S. Um, by a landslide. So it is 663,300 square miles large, which is... That's like half the size of our country. It's more than twice the size is of it Texas. More than, holy shit. I'll tell you that. Yeah. Um, it is in the extreme northwest of North America, so it's not part of the contiguous United States, United mm-hmm. States. Uh, it borders Canada. To, to its east. It is otherwise surrounded by water on the other three sides. Uh, the Gulf of Alaska is on the south. The Bering Sea and the Bering Strait is to the west, and so is Russia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Across from that, that's why Sarah Palin could see Russia from her window or whatever. From her house. Yeah. And uh, the Beaufort Sea 
to the north. I'm saying Beaufort because that's how you say it in South Carolina, right? Mm-hmm. It could be Beaufort. It is. Could be. There could be a different um, pronunciation. Any uh, Alaskan listeners we have? We yeah. might We might have one. You I never know. I can ask Ariel. She would know. That's true. Um, so this disaster happened in Prince William Sound. So that's a little inlet on the south side of Alaska. So you can see kind of there on the map that I printed out for you. Pour vous. Um, you'll have more pictures for me next week than I have for you for this week, I'm pretty sure. Um, but please, nothing tragic. Like I'll try not to. The otters. Mm, yeah. That's really uh, the first image I always think of is the uh, otters. Oh, otters are so cute. Yeah, well, there was a lot of dead ones. Aww. So uh, Prince William Sound is part of the Gulf of Alaska, and it's not far from Anchorage. So, like, you can see Anchorage on this map. There's Anchorage. There's Valdez. It's just kind of like on the other side of this little peninsula yeah, that's, area. I didn't realize. Uh, okay, I thought Anchorage was on Prince William Sound. I stand corrected. Mm. You had heard of Prince William Sound before? Oh, oh yeah. Really? Yeah. I had never heard. Um, I watched like kind of one or two seasons of... Um, no, the first uh, show oh, about Northern the shipping. No, 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 no. The, the reality show about uh, the about the fishing. That's not a thing. The fishing expedition thing. I can't think of the Deep name catch. of it. No, it's something like something that. like that. Dangerous catch. Dangerous catch. Yeah, something like that. Anyway, <laughs> I believe on <laughs> Cold War truckers. <laughs> That's actually coming up again. But uh, yes, they. One or two episodes there in Prince William Sound. Hmm. And they were talking about... Deadliest Catch. Deadliest Catch, thank you. Yes. <laughs> the, the, show, the show that I watched, but you could remember the name of. <laughs> After um, I got past Cold War Truckers. But uh, I, I'm pretty sure, or it might have, because once that show started, there were a couple other shows yeah. like it. But on one of those shows, I'm pretty sure it was Deadliest Catch. They were in Prince, they were in Prince William, William Sound. Sound. Which is a dangerous area because you can see, like, there's a lot of and islands, shallows, straits. freezing yes. fucking cold. Yes. And if you yes. go into the water, you're dead. Yeah. I mean, well, it's yeah. pretty much simple as yeah. that. Yeah. Um, and obviously Anchorage is like one of the... More or less two or three cities in Alaska that anyone's ever heard of. Uh, Juneau is the capital. It I know is. that. Can you I, name any other Alaska towns? Uh, no, I cannot. <laughs> There's one more that I'll mention a little bit that you may have heard of before. So. Okay. Okay. So now that we're done with geography corner, <laughs> let's move over, children, to our short history corner, Alaska edition. This is very small history. Yes. yes. <laughs> Well, the statehood version is not the actual land no. itself, but we're we're gonna concentrate on the state part of Alaska. So yes, Alaska was the second to last state to join the United States. Um, Hawaii did join later in the same year, um, so it was 1959. Oh, that's okay. Joined. I knew it was 50 something. I just couldn't remember. Both of which. my parents were born. Actually, all four of our parents were born into a world where there were only 48 states. That's true. My parents just barely. My dad by literally like three days. That's true. But yeah, okay. Before there were forty nine, but still. Um, I was so, born into a world where there were only twenty six NFL teams. Now there's thirty two. I don't. I don't think that translates. As sure, it does. Okay. Yeah, people love the NFL. <laughs> <laughs> My throat rejected you on that. Take a take a sip. Mm. All right. 
So Alaska had been a military district of the United States, Mm -hmm. controlled by the federal government from 1867 to 1884. And at that point, it became a judicial district as well. Again, controlled federally, but still not a state. Um, The gold rush, it was part of the gold rush of the late 19th century. Yeah, people went, prospectors went to Alaska as well. I hope they got in and out of there really quick. (laughs) But we know that they didn't. Well... Alaska started to become known, like, okay, maybe, well, there there was some mineral um, wealth. industry, wealth. yes, um, but also, at that point, fishing and hunting. Oh, sure. That's there, true. That's as well true. as mining. So, so, there were some burgeoning industries there. It's just in spite of its cold. so fucking it's cold. Really cold. Um, so Alaska wanted to move towards more self-government, away from the fe- control of the federal government in the early 20th century, but it, it was kind of stymied specifically by J.P. Morgan, the individual at that point, not the bank, although that was his bank, um, and Simon Guggenheim, mm. who was the brother of the guy who the museum in New York is named after. Um, so Morgan and Guggenheim were known as the Alaska Syndicate, and they had specific interest in Alaska's mining industry as well as oh, um, I'll bet they did railroads and salmon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and fish- because because uh, J.P. Morgan, um, fun fact, was the biggest investor in electricity when it was first a thing, and he is also the first known person to have electricity in his house. Imagine that. Yes. Well, I guess when you get on the ground floor of an industry, you get and first dibs. Guess what you're going to need a lot of for electricity? Coal. Oh, yeah. There Mining. you go. Energy, yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. And um, we're talking about this is the robber baron era, so he's worth he's worth a billion dollars 100 years ago, which right. is... I don't even can't even imagine how much money that is now. Right. Uh, so there was a pushback against the syndicate, uh, with the first Alaskan statehood bill being proposed in 1916. So Alaska fought for statehood for a really long time. Of course, that bill failed, and part of the reason that it failed was that while citizens of Alaska wanted self government. They weren't necessarily thrilled with the idea of becoming a state. Sure. They, they wanted to self-govern, but not necessarily through statehood per se. But at the same time, they didn't want to be taken advantage of by two freaking. So yeah, they're kind of they're damned if they do, damned if they well, don't. Kind of. It would suck to just be like, no, you're just our territory. We belong. You belong to us. Yeah. But, but you don't, don't get, get any, any you don't get any real representation yeah, yeah. that is yeah. also currently going on today. Well. Um, oh yeah, and yes, also if a yes. hurricane comes through. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 I know, I knew what you were saying, but I said yeah. I'm like, yeah, if a hurricane comes through, you were gonna pretend you're not part of us anymore. Yeah. That and, that happened recently. And, and blame it on you for being an island. Yeah. Fuck Trump. <laughs> so throughout the twenties and thirties, uh, Alaska struggled. Especially through the Depression. Obviously, the whole country did, but Alaska definitely had some problems during that time. Um, Then President uh, Franklin Roosevelt, FDR, did um, offer some help that did actually help Alaska. He offered 1,000 American farmers in the U.S. who had struggled through the Depression, um, offered to give them an opportunity to move to Alaska. 
to farm in Alaska. To start anew. Right. Um, and to, uh, to and it would help the farmers get things and, get things going a little yes, bit. Yes, and it would also yeah. help the Alaskan economy get a, get a local economy going. Right, get yeah. the agriculture kind of up and running there, or or burgeoning more. Um, and he also appointed, even though again this it was still not a state, he did appoint the first Alaskan governor. Okay, that's interesting. So, um, and that was Ernest Gruning. So Alaska also had. Uh, you're, you're right, they didn't have representation as a state, but they did have territorial delegates mm-hmm. in Congress. So there was some level of representation. Uh, the, the U.S. Virgin Islands delegate uh, got to ask Michael Cohen a question. Oh, okay. So mm-hmm. a very good one, too. Okay. And people pointed out um, that person doesn't have any real power because they're a delegate of the Virgin Islands. As opposed to a Congress person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But they do have... Kind of representation. A level of representation. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So World War II actually helped. I feel like I'm, like I've been smoking like twenty thousand packs of cigarettes. Sorry, guys. This is this has been such a fun week. Um, World War II actually helped the cause for statehood oh, for yeah. Alaska, because it was it became a strategic location during the war. It was on the Pacific, close to Russia. And not that far from Japan, really, either, um, relatively speaking. U.S. soldiers were sent to the military bases there, and so the population grew, too. And in spite of mixed feelings about statehood for Alaskan residents post-World War II, a referendum passed there in Alaska just after World War II in 1946 by a 3-2 to vote ratio, um, supporting the idea of becoming a state. So by a well, not also, overwhelming margin, but Alaskans generally won at that point were, were warming to the idea of becoming a state. There were also, and I, I don't know if you saw this or not, but there were also battles that were fought in Alaska yes, during yes, World War uh-huh. II. The first um, Japanese Zero that we shot down, mm-hmm. um, that was the the plane of the, the Japanese Air Force, the Zero. Okay. Um but it was a far superior plane to us. The first one we shot down and actually got our hands on and got the technology from was in Alaska. Yeah, but it wasn't technically the United States. At it that was time. not. So that's why there have been no quote and, battles fought. And neither Alaska. was and neither was Hawaii. That's right. Neither was Pearl Harbor. Mm. Although they would later become states. Yeah. So yeah. Um, so in a way we were we were attacked. In a way we weren't. Yeah. So um, in 1946, another statehood bill was introduced. Excuse me, and it was um, shot down promptly, did not pass, happened again in 1950. So at this point, the bills are coming up a little more frequently, still not passing Congress. Then finally, in 1958, President Dwight D. Eisenhower got behind the statehood bill that year, and Congress finally approved a bill to admit Alaska into the Union and it became the 49th state on January 3rd, 1959, um, 60 years ago, just over 60 years mm-hmm. ago. So happy birthday, Alaska. Um, cheers. cheers to you. We know you drink a lot because there's not much else to do there. Because why wouldn't you? Our brethren to the north. Past our brethren to the north. <laughs> past and, Canada. And, and west of there. Yes. So... Part of the hesitancy to admit Alaska to the Union, in spite of it having been a U.S. territory for so long, was the fact that 
it was so far away. Yeah, from the it's rest just of the it's just US, remote, and it really didn't have a ton going on for it in terms of like farmland. I mean, the U.S. was still very agriculturally driven at that point and leading up to that point. So the idea that it wasn't traditionally farmable in the same sense as like the Midwest, the American quote, American heartland made it not as typical of a state. Another uh, problem for them. And I saw this in one of the World War Two documentaries I watched. There wasn't that much of an infrastructure either as far yeah. as roads and bridges. True. Because most of the places where they were trying to build them, it's so cold. So, the so permafrost. Yes. And the, yes, yes. Absolutely. It's like you would have, you would have workers dying literally from frostbite right. and stuff like that. And just, right. Mm-hmm. So that was another problem for that. They, they, there was no real infrastructure to have. Right. Yeah. No, that makes complete or sense. comparable. There was no, Modern 20th century infrastructure like what we had already had in the United States at this point. Right. That was that did not exist in Alaska. Right. Right. Yeah. So in a way, as far as infrastructure, I was like going back in time a bit. Yeah. Probably yeah. about 50 years. Yeah. Yeah. So even after it was granted statehood, Alaska struggled. It had a minimal population, uh, a kind of depressed economy. Most of its support came from federal funds. Sure. So the federal government was kind of propping up the economy. Um, but And they're going to anyway because there are military bases there. Well, so, yeah, but, yeah. But one boon to the state came with the Statehood Act itself. It allowed Alaska to pick over 100 million acres, which is about a quarter to a third of its total area. Mm-hmm. They, the state was allowed to choose land to develop for itself state-owned land that the federal government would not be able to lay claim to. Um, now, it made sense that the state wanted to pick land. You know, it was given this opportunity. wanted to pick land that was as rich in natural resources as possible. So the state... Moldover, okay, what part of land should we choose? Um, and the person kind of put in charge of deciding, or at least recommending, was a petroleum geologist named Tom Marshall. Uh, and obviously, they were looking for oil. Because <laughs> with oil comes lots and lots of money, exactly. Um, and there were several oil fields in Alaska at the time, just not massive ones. So they were just little, little, comparatively little fields. Um, so Marshall spectated. He surveyed land and tried to figure out, okay, where might be the best place to claim this land, like claim to this land for Alaska. Where's the most oil? Well, that's what he was charged to find. Mm-hmm. And he settled on an area in and around Prudhoe Bay. Of course he did. That <laughs> son of a bitch. So Prudhoe Bay, and I can show you on this map, like, Prudhoe Bay is there. Oh my god, that's at the... It is in that's the extreme... That's basically on the North Pole. It is the extreme <laughs> northern part... Holy shit. ...of Alaska, kind of central, slightly skewing a little more east... Um, it's not by anything. It is on. It, it's on the Beaufort Sea or whatever uh, Beaufort Sea. There are literally uh, tauntauns that live on that part of Earth. Fun Star Wars reference for people. Oh, okay. I was like, what's a tauntaun? <laughs> <laughs> if anybody has seen Empire Strikes Back, which you have, 
It, it's the little the it's the little ones. snow things that they wrote in the very beginning. Oh, okay. Yeah. But the, they exist in real life in this part of Alaska. Okay. Well, that's not just in the Star Wars universe. Okay. I've been on a tauntaun. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're pulling my leg. <laughs> All right. So, um, yeah, like I said, it's not near anything. And the closest sort of bigger town that you may have heard of is Fairbanks, Alaska. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. Yes. But even that was 400 miles <laughs> south of Trudeau Bay. Can you imagine being anywhere in Alaska and being 400 miles south and being like, it sucks here, too? <laughs> <laughs> like, at least where I grew up, if you went 400 miles south, like, things were pretty good. Oh, they, yeah. they, they were better. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, no. New York City isn't 400 miles No, I'm, I'm talking yeah. about, like, yeah, you're getting past Pennsylvania yeah. almost. So, so uh, Tom Marshall was like, here, Prudhoe Bay, we want, uh, this looks good. I've got a nose for this stuff. I think... There's oil here. Um, so he picked that area, and the then-governor, Bill Egan, uh, was like, are you sure? He's like, this is an extreme location. It's just frozen land. He's like, I'm not I'm not trying to say you're not good at what you do, but... Uh. But there was, um, there was a little bit of a tell that uh, Marshall wasn't the only one interested in that land. A few oil companies were also showing interest prior to Marshall picking this land. Oh, I'm sure. So yeah. between Marshall saying, no, this looks good, and the other oil companies, be, or the oil companies being like, oh, this does look good, um, in 1964, Alaska was like, okay, we're taking this land in and around Prudhoe Bay. This is ours. You gave it to us in the Statehood Act. Here we go. So over the next few years, they spectated. They looked for oil, and it didn't so go so well at first. Um, it was dangerous. It was a super dangerous place to drill. It was remote. It was dark. It was cold, and they were not finding anything. It was just misery for a while. Then, in very late 1967, near Christmas... Um, it's a Christmas miracle. They struck oil. Now, striking oil, it's like one thing, and I'm sure it was very hopeful that okay, good, we finally struck oil. There's a but whole lot. Of, there's a whole lot of other steps in the process that after that. That didn't mean anything sure. initially, but but here's the thing. Over the next few months, they realized, shit, we didn't just strike oil; we struck the motherfucking motherlode. Specifically, they had found. The single biggest oil field in the entire United States. Something that still holds today. No shit. The second biggest is in Texas. Sure. But they hit the literal mother load. So they estimated that the field held 10 billion barrels of oil. Now, to give some context, do you know how many gallons are in a barrel of oil? 100? 42. Okay. I learned that through this research. So anyway. <laughs> Samsonite. <laughs> so, unfortunately, here's the downside of all of this. This oil, billions and billions of barrels of oil, 
We're in an extremely remote, cold, barren part of the country, or really the world. I mean, because this is like some pretty harsh country. They are period. in a place where it's like they're. It's the tundra, it's Siberia. There is literally no civilization where they are. Only because they're drilling for oil. And that's the only, yeah, that's the only civilization there mm-hmm. is, it's just them. Yeah. There, there's not like a town five miles down the road where yeah. you're like, hey guys, let's go get a burger and a beer. Like, right. it doesn't exist. So, what would the the problem solving be for having, t- okay, we've got all this oil way up here, further nor- north part, farthest north part of Alaska. How the fuck do you get to get it? Get it anywhere? Pipeline. Pipeline. Put it in your pipeline and smoke it. <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm just going to throw out this word and see if you mention it. I don't know if you did this okay. in your research at all, but um, in 1981 or 82, a stipend becomes involved with this pipeline. Oh, yes. I, okay. I, that's how we first started talking about it. Oh, yes. okay. Trust me, I get to that. Okay. Yes. Do you think I would not mention something tax related? I guess I guess I should have. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm kicking myself right now. Well, you're drinking an 11%. That's, that's true. Why. All right. <laughs> Did you just cheers the microphone again? All right. So, uh, so yeah, pipeline. That's the only way they could think. Like, we got to get this shit somewhere that it can actually be exported. Also, um, by this point, uh, a very trusted and true technology. Not foolproof. I mean, they had no, their problems here and there. But as far as transporting oil, this is the way to do it. It worked, yeah. So, in the summer of 1969... Back in the summer of 69. I should not be singing with my voice uh-huh. like this. <laughs> oh, yeah. Me and big 69. Okay, we're, we need to move. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Don't make me sing anymore. I'm going to lose all my voice. It's Canada's finest, Brian Adams, which might as well be Alaska's finest, too. Did you hear that Ryan Adams is a complete, like, um, sexual predator douchebag? Oh, allegedly, I could be like libeling. Ryan Adams is somebody different. I know, but in my mind, they're the same person, <laughs> but they're not. No. Ryan Adams is fine. <laughs> A little dirty in his songs, but uh, yes. Let's move on. In the summer of 1969, developers applied for a permit. Stars are just going down on this episode. To build, well, fuck them then. <laughs> was to build an 800 mile long or 1300 kilometers pipeline that is the north-south distance of Alaska. Like, okay. so it had to run from Prudhoe Bay all the way down to Valdez, mm-hmm. Alaska, on Prince William Sound. Now, the permit had to be granted by the Department of the Interior. Remember, we're talking about federal land. Oh, yeah. Running through federal land. So the Department of the Interior analyzed the plan, passed a report along to the proper committees in the U.S. House and Senate. The permit was asking for more land than was authorized that they be allowed, right? They had picked their land already. Um, well, they're just going to... Let's see if anybody notices. Well, so that's... But that's why it wasn't just up to the Department of the Interior. Sure. It had to take an act of Congress. Um, so uh, in late 1969... The Department of the Interior was apparently all for it while they were waiting for Congress um, because they were working directly with developers. They were going straight to native villages that could lay claim, claim to the land 
um, that the pipeline would run through asking them like literally like will you sign this waiver for this land so we can build a pipeline um and they they had a lot of success with that they basically like knocked on doors and had people sign their land rights away and it worked um and so eventually congress lifted the land freeze and initial construction permits were granted but of course not everyone was keen on the idea of building this pipeline that would have to run literally all the way through down the straight middle of Alaska. Um, specifically, environmentalists were very concerned about the environmental impacts and um, native people of Alaska were concerned about the negative impacts to their land, uh, to their culture. And there were, there were especially concerns about... Um, the impact to the caribou population because a lot of native people ate caribou and relied on caribou just to exist. What, what are you thinking? But in all fairness, this is the last time a pipeline would cause a controversy about land. Oh yeah, it's the very last time. It's it's just it's all never ha- sailing. It's never happened since. Oh no, 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 no. Hashtag sarcasm. <laughs> so, so and there were other protests too, like fishermen who thought that the oil drilling would drive away fish from the area and whales who they that they caught. So, um, and that would cause their livelihoods to be jeopardized. Yeah, also at this time, whaling is still legal. Yeah. yeah. Very, very much so. Yeah. Um, as a vegan, I'm a little um, torn on that specific issue, but again, well, veganism well, the, is, a, the, is a privilege. The koozie you have is named after that exact act. The whalers. Wait, it's... Oh, after whaling? Mm-hmm. They weren't just naming it because they liked whales? No. They were naming it after killing whales? I think so. It was an industry and, uh, yeah. I don't want to use this cookie anymore. <laughs> it, was, it was an industry literally every eastern city. I know, but it's sad now. I had joy <laughs> in the whalers. Now I have You can still have joy. You can still have joy. It's a fun... Look at the logo. Look how but fun that is. The whales. Not with the logo, just that's what you know. They were ki- what was the, the little the little um, mascot thing? Oh, uh, Willie the whale? Or no, it was not Willie. I can't. I'm. I, it saddens me that I cannot remember. I can't remember. Anyway, it had a really weird name. Yeah, and it was a strange looking mascot. It was, but mascots are creepy. <laughs> anyway, Pucky. Pucky the whale. Pucky the whale. That's right. <laughs> oh my god. What a clue. Uh, they will be in their whalers uniforms again in Boston, I believe, okay. on Tuesday or Wednesday. Wednesday? Go Canes. Yes. Thank you for changing your name, although you change your name to something that kills people. Well, that's better than killing animals. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Moving on. All right. So after the initial permits were granted for construction, a federal judge issued an injunction against the entire project in April of 1970. He's like, nope, stop. And I'm saying he because this was 1970. Let's face it, most judges were male at that point, so I'm guessing it was a he. But anyway, said no, and so constructed had to, construction had to halt. They stopped. Um, so both those for and against the pipeline basically were just duking it out for a while in lobbies and lawsuits and everything else. So then something happened. Um, 1973 rolled around. 
Do you know what happened significantly in 1973 that might impact this entire situation? That's the year Nixon resigned, wasn't it? Probably. Um, but what else? I, I don't, I'm not sure. What? OPEC declared an oil embargo. Oh, okay. Causing oil I didn't reala- prices. I didn't realize it was yeah. that early in the... I thought that was like in 75 I or 76. I think there were multiple ones. Okay. <laughs> causing oil prices to almost quadruple worldwide, causing a major economic and energy crisis, especially in the United States. Mm-hmm. Like it hit the U.S. really badly. And at that point, it started looking to Congress like domestic oil production was not just feasible, but necessary. It was, yeah, had to do it. Like, it, this, there's no choice. Um, so add to the fact that then-president U.S. U.S. president, I said then-president U.S. <laughs> <laughs> U.S. president Richard Nixon, so he was still in office at the time. Oh, I guess, he, okay. He had been for the pipeline the entire oh, time. He was very for the pipeline. Yeah. And so, as a result, you get the Trans-Alaska Pipeline Authorization Act signed into law in November 1973, which effectively eradicated all of the legal hurdles for the pipeline development. I've heard on like one or two things before, too, in other documentaries, like that was the deal he made for the, uh, for the EPA. He's like, I'll give you this agency if I get this. Shit. If if you give me this huge impact to the you, environment, you can have your agency. You can you can fix it after that. Mm-hmm. Ugh. Deal with the devil. That's not proven whether it's true or not, but gotcha. it's a it's a suspicion. It's a okay. very high suspicion. It's like why would this guy? Like when you tell people like Nixon created the, the EPA, EPA, people yeah. are like fuck off. Yeah. But yes, he did, and people are put this as like a it was a tit for tat. Mm. It's like, I'll get mine, and you can have yours. Well, I guess that's the history of politics, isn't it? Pretty much. Quid pro quo. Quid pro quo. (laughs) Say that again. Quid pro quo. I'm pretty sure you said quid pro quo. Crow. Yes. How's that 11%er treating you? Pretty good. (laughs) So, construction continued for the Trans-Alaska Pipeline. I keep wanting to say Transatlantic. I don't know why. In January 1974, and it was completed in just a little over three years um, at an estimated cost of about $8 billion. So in today's dollars, it's about $34 billion. (sighs) The first barrel of oil was successfully transported through the pipeline on July 28th, 1977. Now, obviously, the pipeline had a lot of impacts, positive and negative, on the people, the landscape, and the economy of Alaska. But I don't have the time or the energy to get into, especially as my voice is going. But here's one little factoid that I thought would be interesting to mention, um, which is the Alaska Permanent Fund, which you mentioned before. It is something that I had only previously heard of in passing because it is mentioned in the U.S. tax code. Like when I was uh, studying for my enrolled agency exam, it would pop up in like code here and there. And uh, like, oh, it's like this, 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 except for the Alaska Permanent Fund and da, 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 da. And so I heard the name of it, but I I had no clue what it was. You just thought it was like a program for tauntauns and polar bears. (laughs) Well, I figured it was something for Alaska, but I didn't know what. But here's the thing. Basically, prior to the pipeline, Alaska had the single highest personal income tax rate 
of any state in the United States at 14.5%. To to draw a contrast, our current North Carolina um, state, or at least as of 2018, state tax it is not progressive it is flat was like five and a half percent wow okay so So we're talking almost almost three times yeah so because of the economic impact of the pipeline the state of alaska has brought in so much more money that there is no state sales or income tax in alaska now that's not to say there's not municipal or local taxes there are some um but Because of the amount of money coming in and because of the fact that at least the state government realized that this isn't an endless supply of oil, it will eventually run out and then have a negative impact on um, the Alaskan economy. They decided to institute what's called the Alaska Permanent Fund, which is basically a payout to Alaskan residents. And yes, there are stipulations like you have sure. to, you can't just move there and be like, right. oh yeah, I'm getting this money and then move away. Um, you have to have an intent to stay. You can't have been convicted of a felony. Like there's a whole bunch of stipulations, but still, um, if you are, you know, if you meet these this criteria, you get a payout every year mm-hmm. from the state government. So not only do you not get taxed, you get money from your state government for, um, and it's based on this whole calculation about returns and stuff. Yeah, prices, I mean, it's it's kind of it's basically it's, it's <coughs> essentially like a dividend. Yes. is kind of what it is. Yes, and it is um, the final amount is decided by the state legislature, I believe. But for example, in twenty eighteen, it was sixteen hundred dollars per person. Yeah, and you just Extra. get a check from your government. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, interestingly, here's the side note to this. So something that has. Um, been brought up in our increasingly communist, socialist, Democrat leftists um, that have been popping up um, in Congress and in, in uh, politics in general who have started talking about a universal income. Here's something interesting that kind of bears a little bit, speaks a little bit to that. Studies of the Alaska Permanent Fund has have shown that the, the payouts have not increased unemployment. In fact, there has been a slight decrease in unemployment. Of course. And so it kind of makes a little bit of a case for a universal payout. Like if we got what, um, uh, sidebar. If, uh, if, sidebar. Sidebar. If we got what, what uh, Andrew Yang is proposing, mm-hmm. like once you turn 18, you can opt in to get a dividend of $1,000 a month, gross. That's not... that's uh, You get taxed. Yes. Yeah. Um, and his, his whole thing about it is uh, retail jobs and trucking jobs in the next 10 to 15 years are going to go down significantly just strictly due to technology. Mm-hmm. There are going to be, there are self-driving trucks that there are already intelligent. Yes. Stuff like that, yeah. So like his idea is this amount of money to protect those people who will, will lose those jobs and need to transition to something else. And also like, Hey, if I own an apartment now, but I want to buy a house, you can save for a down I can payment. save for two or three years and then get the down payment for a house. So it's, it's interesting. Listen to his pitch on it. It's, on Rogan, it's not. You said he was on yes. the Joe Rogan experience. It's right? not flawless. Like even I thought it was like some things. Well, what about this and this and that? But overall, hey, 
I'm for it. Well, and it's worked on a much smaller scale in Alaska. Yes. It appears. Yes, there is at least a for that. There is at least a model. Right. There's at least an experiment that's yes. that has been taking place for almost forty years, I think. Um. Well, or a little more than forty. Well, you were born the same year as the pipeline began. So why don't so you tell like us a, how many years like ago 19, that was? 1987. That was a good year. <laughs> I didn't know I married a younger man. <laughs> How dare you? All right. So, <clears throat> now we're going to get into... So, that was just all Alaska. Jesus Christ, took 45 minutes to talk about Alaska. So, now we're finally going to start introducing Exxon into this entire picture, right? So... That's an oil company, right? <laughs> it might be. Yeah. Uh, so, something it's like, I, it's like a mom and pop operation. I've <laughs> kind of heard of them. <clears throat> <laughs> Something I realized when I was choking myself out just then, um, and while doing research uh, for this episode, is that I really didn't know much about how oil is actually obtained and transported. Um, so, I mean, like, I know words like drilling and pipelines and tankers and have, like, a general idea of how it works, but... I'm going to get into a really, like, superficial version of how that stuff works. Um, and I would like to credit HowStuffWorks.com for this knowledge, too. Um, listen to their podcast, How Stuff Works. It's a very good podcast. Um, anyway, so let's talk about oil. David, what is oil? Uh, oil is uh, something I... <coughs> Something that comes in a uh, crude form that is turned into petroleum that I put in my car. But where does the crude oil come from? Uh, in the ground. Way deep in the ground. Yeah, from what? Stuff. <laughs> You're not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Rocks. So here's the thing. Oil is basically super old dead shit. <laughs> um, so it's like Sounds like a Tarantino movie. Super old dead shit. Super old dead shit. If he could have an uncensored title, he probably would use that one. I'll pitch that one to him. There you go. So it's basically like all the little creatures and plants and organisms and shit that died millions of years ago. Um, But wait, the planet's only 6,000 years old. I know, I know, I know. (laughs) It sank to the bottom of the sea, got piled on throughout the centuries with other layers of shit... Um, this is not an academic description, in case you couldn't tell. Um, for those of you looking for an NPR podcast, this like is... Like, you're at the wrong... This isn't it. You took a wrong turn. If from, you didn't realize that a couple of minutes in and you're still here, well, then that's your fault. Yeah, move along. No, stay. <laughs> you might like it here. Yeah. So the pressure from all the shit piling on top of the old dead shit heats the old dead shit up... Basically turning it into crude oil through a form of distillation. Ha! Look at all those words I just said. Sounds good to me. Um, But it's under all the rocks and other stuff piled on top of it. So to get to that oil, you have to drill down through the rock to get to it. There we go. Um, now, once oil is found, and I am not even getting into the spectating part of oil, because that's all. Oh, that's a, the yeah. ball game. Um... Then you can drill into the rock to get into it. And of course, even just, it's not like you take a giant drill bit. Like it's a whole, that's a whole other ball game too. 
Plus, there's drilling rights. It's a process. It's a process. There's drilling rights, environmental impact, roads, reserve pits, like a whole other bunch of stuff. Guys, I was so sick this week. I'm just too lazy to get into it, but nobody cares anyway. So the environmental impact, that's the thing that they get to last. And they're like, uh, yeah, we're good. Yeah, whatever. (laughs) So at any rate, multiple holes are dug to get, um, to get to the oil. And then the rig is built. So the rig is the mechanism built above and below ground to pump the oil from the ground. Um, if you've ever seen any pictures of oil fields, you've probably seen these like scaffoldy looking structures or ladder like looking structures. So those are mostly the derricks above ground that support the whole structure of everything that's used to um, extract the actual oil. So now to continue my oversimplification of this entire process, the oil is then pumped through the pipelines to get it to an area where it can be exported, right? Transported. So that's what happened in the case of um, Prudhoe Bay and Alaska, uh, or Valdez, Alaska. So in the case of the Exxon Valdez, that area was Valdez. Like I said, that's where the pipeline ran to. Um, So since Valdez is on the water, the oil could then be put on oil tankers and transported from there to other ports. So um, now... A really quick, like incredibly short history of Exxon, specifically. Um, so it's one of those names that most of us probably recognize, um, or Exxon Mobil, as they're now known. I'm definitely old enough to remember 20 years ago when they were Exxon and Mobil, but then they merged in '99. Yeah, 99. that's true. Yeah. Do you remember Mobil stations? Yeah. I remember Exxon stations. It and is Exxon. I guess I never. Yeah. I never, I never pinned the two things together. Yeah, yeah. So Exxon has its roots way back in American oil history, so far back that it traces back to the Standard Oil Company Incorporated, oh. which is what Rockefeller, John D. Rockefeller himself, co-founded with Henry Flagler in 1870. So old oil. Um, Exxon was called Standard Oil Company of New Jersey until 1972, which is when it became Exxon. It merged with Mobil in 99. Um, and today Exxon Mobil is the world's ninth largest company by revenue. Do you know what number wow. one is? By revenue? Uh, is, it Am- is it Amazon? No. no. I don't even think they were on the top ten. No. <coughs> Google? Walmart. Oh, yeah, I guess they would be. That's true. No matter what, no. Also our biggest employer. Yeah. So sad. Biggest uh, civilian employer. I do not participate in Walmart. I do recognize that that is a point of privilege as well, but still. Okay, so now let's talk about the Exxon Valdez. Sure. (laughs) Are you just smiling because, like, you're seeing me struggle (laughs) through talking with my voice the way it is? This is what it's been like all week with clients. It's been the worst. It's not, it wasn't that, it was that you're getting a little tipsier. No, I'm getting frustrated (laughs) with my voice is what I'm getting, so. All right. So, the Exxon Valdez, oh, cheers. 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 How's your rewind lager? Uh, It's okay. Yeah. Just okay? Yeah. Is it, this is Birdsong, right? It is. We like Birdsong. Well, it's a lager. Yeah. Loggers are usually just okay. No, no, not always. No. 
You like a lager. I'm not a lager person. Anyway. Um, that was fascinating radio. Um, this isn't radio, though. <laughs> no, anyway. it isn't. <laughs> so the Exxon Valdez was the name of one of those oil tankers. And this fucker was big. I actually put sucker in the script, but I decided to say fucker. Um, its dimensions were, I'm going to give it in feet first, then in meters, okay? So its dimensions were 987 feet long. Sure. 166 feet wide and 88 feet deep. Yeah. So, or for the rest of the world, that's 301 meters by 51 meters by 26 meters. So it had been ordered to be built in August of 1984 and was built in San Diego, California by the National Steel and Shipbuilding Company. It was launched in October of 1986. So at the time of the disaster, it was actually a pretty new tanker. Sure. So it was less than three years old at that point. And, and the reason I'm just like kind of nodding, like, because... <coughs> Growing up on the St. Lawrence River, which is a major international waterway, saw these things all the time, and they are fucking huge. Enormous, yeah. Well, just thinking, like, almost a thousand feet long. Yeah, they're huge. That's three football fields plus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Um, So, the Valdez could hold up to 1.48 million barrels of oil. So, that's... um, about 62 million gallons of oil. That can just be stored on one ship. On this one tanker, exactly. So the Valdez was classified as a VLC, or, or sorry, VLCC, which is a very large crude carrier. <laughs> um, so it's basically one of the biggest types of tankers. The only one that's bigger is the ultra-large crude, crude carrier, the ULCC, so... There's very large and ultra large. I, like, I can't imagine what ultra large would even be like after seeing these things. Right? But Jesus. It'd be like so, the size of a state. Like right? flo- yeah, basically. <laughs> floating past you. So the captain of the Exxon Valdez was a 43-year-old man. Does this sound pretty close to being near your age? No, not Sir? at all. Mm-mm. Maybe within... 11 months or so actually less yeah, uh, I'm not, close, 10, I'm not, almost 10 months not sure who you're talking about but uh continue i've really been needling you about your age this episode i'm sorry i didn't realize i was doing that so much um yes anyway, you did his name was joseph hazelwood so joseph hazelwood was a longtime sailor joey hazelwood joey hayes they call him joe hayes jay hayes Jay Hay. Hey, Hazelwood. Hazelwood. <laughs> Joey. Come here, Joey. <laughs> Joey. Anyway, uh, sailing was a hobby from his childhood, like from sure. Boy Scouts and shit. So, yeah. And his friends uh, called him, like, even from like his teenage years, a natural at sailing. Like, he just seemed to have a knack for it. He was also really, really intelligent. He te- His IQ tested at 138 as a kid. For reference, 140 or over 140 is considered basically a genius. So this kid was smart. Oh, so now I know where I am. Okay. <laughs> did you ever get your IQ tested? Yeah, no, I'm kidding. I, I was, never did. No, did you I ever? I don't think so. Yeah. It's probably not 138. <laughs> <laughs> Same here. Um, uh, you would be a lot closer than I would be. Ugh, let's yeah. not let's not give me too much credit here. Remember, I homeschooled myself. Um. 
So he took his intelligence and his knack for sailing to the State University of New York system and went ah. to SUNY Maritime College. Have you ever heard of that? No. So it's in the Where Bronx. Is that? Okay. It's in the Bronx. And it is America's oldest educational institution of its kind, meaning geared towards sailing. Geared That's interesting. toward maritime pursuits. Never yeah. heard of that. It's like only one of seven in the entire US. But anyway. It's not a military institution, not like West Point or something like that, but they did organize the students in a very similar manner Sure. Um, into what they called a regiment of cadets. So it was a very militaristic structure, and the training was so hardcore that only about 40% of students like kept at it and graduated. 60% wow. dropped out. So that's a pretty... That's a tough... Tough program, I would think, if that many Well, if you're going to. there in the first place, then you there's a good chance that you know what you're doing. And then you find out, 60% of the people find out, like, no, I have no fucking clue. Yeah, like, I can't do this, yeah. I imagine it also wasn't that easy to get into in the first place. Probably not. Well, no, it's a state school, so. Well, yes, but that doesn't mean anyone can get in. That is true. For example, yes. um... Uh, Florida State University and the University of Florida um, are state schools, but mm-hmm. they are not yeah. necessarily a no. slam dunk to get into. You can't into. just go. Yeah. Yeah, you still have to go through admissions. Anyway, um, so Hazelwood was not one of the 60%. He, he hung in. Um, he managed to stand up to the rigors of training, in part by blowing off a lot of steam on the weekends through lots and lots of partying. Um, at that point, let's see, he was born, he was 43, let's see, he was born in, like, 46. So 20 years later, it, this is, like, the late 60s he was going to school, mid-late 60s. So you can imagine the kind of partying that was going on. This is, like, the free love era and everything, even in New York. Um, Bryce Laraway, a former college roommate of Hazelwood, said, quote, On a scale of 1 to 10... We were probably a 14 in terms of drinking. And Holy going. shit. <laughs> yeah. Um, and Laraway also recounted several tales of their drunk driving escapades during that era. So. Yeah, that, that was before it was illegal, though. I mean, drunk really. Drunk driving in was the 60s? in the 60s. Of course it fucking was. If they just didn't probably yeah. buzz people as much no. as they do now. No. But it was a Not thing. I'm sure it was on the books. I would think it was on the books. I don't know. I don't know if it was something that was necessarily enforced. (coughs) Like the the, like the generation ahead of me, like my oldest sisters, their age, like they were like, if you got caught drunk driving, like the the cop would just follow you home. Like yes, it was. It was not taking all taken all that seriously. Well, okay, so. So Hazelwood made it all the way through SUNY Maritime and straight out of college, he was hired by a company called Esso, which would later become Exxon. So he was a career man at Exxon. Uh, The Esso Club is also one of the oldest uh, college bars in Clemson, South Carolina. And that's what it stems from. It used to be an Esso gas station. C-L-E-M-S-O, little lasso. And there you go. Thank you. I tried. I don't have the voice to really do it with gusto. You sound like you're commentating on a live disc golf event. (laughs) Which we just saw for the first time today. Yes, that was hilarious. Anyway, (coughs) before this devolves into nothing but coughing, I'm going to keep going. 
Um, so when uh, Hazelwood was hired by Exxon, he basically struck the jackpot. So he went into Exxon as a third mate um, with their shipping division, and he was paid in 1968 $24,000 a year. Would you like to take a guess as to how much that is in modern I'm going to guess that's uh, like 100 to 120 $174,000. <laughs> shit. A 22-year-old. Wow. Well, I'm not saying he didn't work hard. Cause right, no. He, yes, of course he did. And he apparently was very good at what he did. Holy shit. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, talk about... Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. So, anyway. Talk about bank. <laughs> yes, and he only climbed the ranks. He climbed the ranks very quickly. Everyone, at, just like like even his childhood friends had been, everyone at Exxon was really impressed with his natural instinct for sailing. He just had an eye for it. Like, he just knew he, what he, he was doing. Some people just have it. Yes, and he had the it factor mm-hmm. in sailing. Exactly. So he rose to the rank of captain within 10 years. So at age 32. Wow. 32. Really young. Yeah, he was the captain of the Exxon Philadelphia. <coughs> oh, my God. I'm hacking up along. So it was, unfortunately, an open secret amongst the sailors at Exxon that Hazelwood, Captain Hazelwood at this point, had a drinking problem. Um, he didn't necessarily try to hide it. He openly drank on board, which was obviously very much against company policy. Um, and he rubbed some people the wrong way, oddly not because of his drinking, but because he was very headstrong, very, you know, demanding, very specific about the way things should be done. And he also had a disdain for bureaucracy, which I can really empathize with. Can't we all? Yeah. So he rubbed some of his sailors the wrong way. <coughs> and I'm going to make it through, God damn it. And I have the headstrongness and the it factor for podcasting. You get, you get, I was just going to say. Sailing. Um, and some of the upper ups in upper management at Exxon because he didn't like the paperwork and shit. So he was sometimes a little insubordinate, basically, which I can also, he's uh, just like, I get the, he's like, I get the fucking shit from point A to point B. He's like, what else do you need? Right. I get the job done. Shut the fuck up. Yeah. Yeah. So in 1985, Hazelwood was the captain aboard an asphalt carrier called the Exxon Chester in the Atlantic ocean. He was driving or driving, (laughs) Traveling, driving the ship, sailing Sailing. the ship (laughs) from New York to South Carolina when they hit a really bad storm off the coast of Atlantic City that snapped the ship's mast. So, like, they were in serious trouble to the point where a bunch of the sailors on board were, like, outfitting themselves with the life jackets, literally getting ready to abandon ship. He convinced them, no. We can do this. It's like, I got this. And sure enough, he was able to regain control of the ship, the, a tanker. I mean, we're not no talking shit. about we're not like talk- a sailboat. That would be hard enough. Yes. But, uh, yeah. Well, I mean. And and he, he was able to, to get it back to New York. If you're going to talk shit and be anti, you better be right. able to back it up. Right. You know, so. so here's the thing. He, he managed to re- to save the boat. Get everybody safely back to New York. Um, 
Do you know what upper management said to him? Why the fuck didn't you just keep going to South Carolina? Why did you turn back to New York? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Of course. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. Because they just lost a lot of money. Yeah. <clears throat> so, in spite of his heroics and his stellar reputation as a sailor, Hazelwood's drinking problem kept being an issue. Um, he had a drunk driving arrest and conviction in 1984. And in April of 1985, he entered rehab for a 28-day stint. Um, in Long Island. Now, Exxon's company policies were to not penalize employees with substance abuse problems, but monitor them closely and encourage them to seek help. Um, so they were basically just monitoring him, keeping an eye on him. Uh, in 1987, he was transferred to, cap- to Captain the Exxon Valdez. So that's when he went aboard that ship. Um, now, through those interim years and beyond, he kept struggling with alcohol abuse, uh, <laughs> strickling. I, I, think I, I think I stumbled over those words. You just, you just uh, name, nameth it. I, well, I nameth it. Yes, I did. Struggling. <laughs> um, his driver's license. So he was captaining ships, but his but, driver's but now license he can't drive a car. <laughs> was revoked <laughs> oh, in 1988 damn. after another drunk driving conviction. Uh, yeah, you might want to take the ship away from him at that point. Well, no, here's the thing. Despite all this, the Valdez was known company-wide as a taut ship and won internal company awards for safety. So he was but, still doing it. But still, I mean... <laughs> Anyway, okay. Nowadays, that would probably be the protocol, I would, I would guess. But who knows? The pro- What would be the protocol? Like, if your captain can't drive a car, then he can't... He can't dri- no, can't, no, 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 no. Can't, I wouldn't can't think sail so. a ship. I would not think so. Yeah. So, are we ready mm. for the actual disaster? The culmination of the past it's only, it's only, hour It's only taken an hour. Oh, Jesus Christ. Okay. And a Jesus Christ. And a Jesus Christ. God bless our soul. On the evening... Of March 23rd, 1989, the Exxon Valdez was at port in Valdez, Alaska, with 53 million gallons of crude oil on board. So that's about 1.2 million barrels that had been pumped from Prudhoe Bay down to Valdez and onto the tanker. Captain Hazelwood boarded the ship that evening, went to his quarters, where he reportedly drank two non-alcoholic beers and one extremely light, um, quote, beer-like beverage. It had a 0.5% alcohol content. So by all, and you're going to, you'll have to get into this next, next week. Mm-hmm. So, um, so here's where I'm passing the baton over to you on oh, this part. Okay. Um, by all account, or by this account, um, he... Basically, only drank non-alcoholic beverages okay. once on board. So, the Valdez was scheduled to set sail for Long Beach, California at 10 p.m. local time, but orders were sent to depart earlier. They're like, come on, come on, time is money, let's move it. So, they actually set sail at 9.12 p.m. local time. Now, per procedure, a harbor pilot was at the wheel of the Valdez initially. So, a harbor pilot, also called a maritime pilot is basically a sailor with advanced navigation knowledge of getting through difficult terrain. Okay. Like in, in certain ports, harbors, kind of like a, shallows. Kind of like a and, specialist. Yeah, a exactly, bit. exactly. 
So, um, because they were in Prince William Sound, or actually in, like, the little inlet into Valdez that to get into the main part of Prince William Sound, this, um, this harbor pilot was the guy kind of getting them out of the main area of concern and navigating them through that area. So, um, Hazelwood got to the bridge to take over around 1.15 p.m., and that was just after the harbor pilot completed his job and left the ship. So I imagine there was, a, like, a little boat or whatever to take him away. Um, we'll say that. So shortly after Hazelwood took over, he radioed the Coast Guard, saying that he was going to move the Valdez from the outbound shipping lane, like, so the area that was designated for outbound ships, into the inbound shipping lane, so the area that was designated for inbound ships, because there were icebergs and ice hazards on the outbound lane, which I would imagine is a constant issue, especially in March in Alaska. So, um, and that was allowed. That was allowable. So about 11.50 p.m., like 25 minutes later, Hazelwood handed the ship over to, and, and you'll have to get into whether this is protocol or not, um, to the third mate, 25-year-old Gregory Cousins. So he ordered Cousins to continue along the course they set on the inbound shipping lane until the ship reached a, navi- a navigational port point. Oh my God, I'm so ready to be done. A navigational point near another island, uh, Busby Island, at which point he was to turn right and return to the outbound shipping lane. So they were going to return back to sort of their normal course because the ice hazards would have passed at that point. So then, so he, he turned it over to Cousins. Then Hazelwood went back to his quarters. Okay. The second mate, Lloyd Lacane, was supposed to relieve Cousins but Lacane was especially tired that evening, and Cousins was like, don't worry, don't rush to relieve me. I've got it for right now. So according to the ship's log, at 11.55 p.m., the Valdez passed Bus- Busby Island, and Cousins phoned Hazelwood in his quarters and said, okay, I'm starting to turn the ship, like you told me, once we pass this navigational point. However... The course recorder aboard the ship that shows what actually happened navigationally um, showed that the actual turn didn't begin until seven minutes later, Mm. 12.02 a.m. on March 24th. So soon after this turn started taking place, a lookout on duty ran into the pilot house and was like, so here's the thing. I'm sure that's exactly what he said. There's a red flashing buoy that I am seeing on the right side of the ship, the starboard side of the ship. I was just going to say, which side is that? That's right. But here's the problem. According to our course, we should be seeing it on the left side. On the the port port side side of the ship. So clearly something's going just fucking wrong. And again, this is a ship that is a thousand feet long. It's not like you can just okay. No. We'll, we'll we'll just correct this in a matter okay, of just, seconds. Just, just turn it. No, no big deal. No, 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 my. Turning friend. a ship this size, doing anything with a ship this size, it takes forever. Is a is a process. Yes, it is. Fuck. So 
So at least the one guy was like, something's wrong. Yes, somebody saw and was like, wait a second. And like, this is not where on? we're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. So at 12.04 a.m. Oh on March 24th, 1989, the Exxon Valdez hit, ran aground, mm-hmm. Bly Reef in Prince William Sound. Now, a few seconds later, like literally, Hazelwood hurt, like felt the impact of of the running aground and like seconds later got a call from cousins who told him quote we are in trouble <laughs> yeah no shit to put so, it light, yeah. to put it lightly hazelwood hauled ass to the bridge took control of the ship to avoid further damage but the damage had already oh, been done yeah. as a result of the damage to the Exxon Valdez, an estimated 10.8 millions estimated, estimated only, gallons of crude oil spilled into Prince William Sound, Alaska. And that, my friends, is the thankfully the end because my voice is going of part one of the Exxon Valdez oil spill. And I will be taking over next week's research when Thank we talk about. God. I probably should have taken over this one at some point. <laughs> really, we should have done it the other way around. But nobody knew I was going to get sick, including me. But anyway, um, now we're up to just the incident. It's happened, and you have to handle everything from there. Good luck, my friend. And what happens afterward is trigger warning for animal lovers. But that's what we will that's get weird. into. That's what we will get into next week. Oh, we'll get into that. Because the wildlife and the environment is what suffered the most, obviously. Nobody, no human being <coughs> in the actual incident dies. No, none of the sailors died no. or the captain or anybody. No. So this is strictly a wildlife and environmental... It's an environmental disaster. Mm-hmm. Exactly what it is. Which, in my opinion, qualifies as a full-blown oh, disaster. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Like I said, I remember when this happened. Yeah. Um, which makes me uh, 25. But anyway. <laughs> On the 30th anniversary... I'm 25. 25. I remembered it when I was negative 5. Yes, I did. Well, that's because of your IQ of <laughs> exactly. over 138. Exactly. It's probably negative five, but anyway. <laughs> this, was, this has been another episode. This has been our 87th episode ah. of All Bad Things. I'm David. I'm Rachel. We'll see you next week, and... Know your exits. And your oil spills. I'm gonna just take that out. Why do you keep <laughs> adding things, especially when my face is like this? I'm sorry. <laughs>